the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. And tonight our guest lawyer is... Josiah Scarrion. For those of you who don't know about the show, the show's in two parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, nostalgia. So in any event, let's start taking some of the questions that uh, we get over the email. Beth, you're on deck first. Okay. This is from Anna. What is the difference between home care and nursing home Medicaid? Okay, well, obviously, home care Medicaid pays for home equipment, home attendance to keep you at home, you know, to keep your relative at home, keep them out of a nursing home. Nursing home Medicaid is to pay for institutional, pay for institutional nursing home bills. They're both Medicaid. Sometimes people ask me the question, what's the difference between regular Medicaid and so forth? I don't know if there is a regular Medicaid. Maybe community Medicaid might be considered that. And that pays for any medical bills not covered by insurance. So what is the difference between them? Well, the main difference between community home care Medicaid and nursing home Medicaid is that in New York, you can be eligible for home care community Medicaid within a month or so. So basically, if somebody has assets in their name alone or join or whatever, if they put their assets in the other person's name or in trust, we usually like a trust, that person, if they put their assets in during the month of September, they can apply for home care community Medicaid on October 1st. Nursing home Medicaid, we have what we call a five-year look-back period. So if you apply for Medicaid to pay for your nursing home bill, you have to document all your transactions for five years prior to your application for benefits. And that can be, you know, time consuming to put it mildly, but you have to document every transaction over, depends on the work you get, usually over $3,000 for five years prior to your application for benefits. That's why some people, if they want to protect their assets from nursing home bills, they set up what we call an irrevocable trust. We put the assets in an irrevocable trust. 90, 95% of the time we do that, the trustee, the person in charge of the trust is going to be a family member, house, son, daughter, trusted nephew or niece. We put the assets in a trust, let's say in September. On October 1st, the first day of the month, we can apply for home care Medicaid. But as far as nursing home Medicaid is concerned, we got the five-year look-back period. So October is month number one on the five-year clock. You're always better off with a shorter clock. You're never worse off. 
with the clock. I know a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to live the five years. They're 80 years old. I'm not going to live five years. Of course, a lot of them come back in 95 to change their documents. What happens if you don't live the five years? Well, the assets go out tax-free. The assets do not have to go through court. The biggest difference between home care Medicaid and nursing home Medicaid, home care Medicaid, we do not have the five-year look-back period. It's month to month. Nursing home Medicaid, you have to document all your transactions for five years prior to your application for benefits. But even if you're faced with a uh, you know, a nursing home situation, we got the five-year look-back period, there are a lot of things we can do. You can spend your money however you want, and a lot of people don't realize this. So we'll say, wait a minute, I, I just spent $50,000 on a new roof on my house. How am I going to explain that? Simple as that. You spend $15,000 on a new roof on your house. That's You can spend your money however you want. And a lot of times we're in these crisis situations with somebody going to a nursing home. We spend that money. We put money into the house. We buy a new car. And you might say, why, why do I want to buy a new car if I'm going to a nursing home? Because you can buy a new car and it's an exempt asset, exempt resource, and you can give it away later. So there are a lot of things we can do. We look at, at exempt transfers. There's some transfers that don't cause a penalty under the five-year look-back period for nursing home Medicaid. For instance, transfers to spouses, transfers to a disabled child. No penalty. You have it, and, and a lot of times right now we're getting, let's say, 60-year-old fireman, let's say, who's out on disability. That's a transfer to a disabled child if we transfer to him, including in trust for him, and we prefer to make the transfers through trust. If you have a homestead, it could be a co-op house condo. We put that house in a trust. We have a son or daughter living in that house for two or more years. That house is protected from nursing home bills because they can't put a lien on a house in trust where you have a son or daughter living in the same house for two or more years. Or disabled. doesn't have to be both. You, know, you can be disabled, not living in the house. You can be living in the house more than two years. You don't have to be disabled. If you have a brother or sister living in the same property for one or more years, and don't ask me why it's one or more years for brother or sister, two or more years for son or daughter, that's just what it is. And again, whether it's a co-op, condo, or house, we can protect those assets. There's no five-year look back. There's no penalty. There is a five-year look back period. You have to explain where the assets, where did they go to, but there's no penalty associated with it. So if you're in a crisis situation, please get the right advice, and you can always give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes a question from his email bag from one of our clients. He asked that question over the year, so take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week, we promise you that uh, Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan uh, Law Firm is going to answer one of your questions, exact actual questions that someone, a listener, has about an exact issue related to estate planning or elder law. And, Mike, this week's question comes from Matt. He said, hey, why can't I print a power of attorney off the Internet and just have that notarized? Why do I even need an attorney? Mike Connors. Well, because you don't want to make a mistake on one of the most important documents of your life. <laughs> That's you know, the reason. standard form power of attorney you get printed off the Internet. They allow you to pay bills. They allow you to do certain things. But, you know, let's say you're in a crisis situation, husband, wife. Husband has to go to a nursing home. We want to get assets out of the husband's name to switch it over to the wife to do a spouse refusal. If the language in the power of attorney doesn't permit that and the standard form does not permit that, you may have to go to court and get court permission and the court's work in an exceedingly slow manner. That's one. Two, sometimes if you apply for Medicaid, if you don't have certain paragraphs in your power of attorney, Medicaid says, hey, you don't have the authority to do this. I don't have to work on your file. Goodbye. Have a nice day. And there's so many little things that can happen. 
you know, it's, it's one of the most important documents you can sign. Make sure, you know, you do it right. And maybe what ifs? You may have a PAV attorney with your spouse. Maybe you should think about having your son or daughter on the PAV attorney. There's so many things that could happen that could go wrong. You should have an attorney look at a PAV attorney. Well, and that's why it's really important to have an actual human being that knows the laws to really scour it, particularly that have uh, the experience that the staff at Connors & Sullivan have. And so, friends, I, I really strongly encourage you, uh, my lovely bride and I, we trust uh, our estate planning to Connors & Sullivan, and they uh, helped us understand that our will wasn't up to date and helped us get uh, the things uh, set up the way they should be. So I'm really strongly encouraging you to give them a call, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And if you've got a question of your own, uh, send that to askmikeconnors at gmail.com, askmikeconnors at gmail.com, and then be listening because he'll answer a question every Thursday here at Kevin McCullough Radio, but he'll also answer it on his broadcast, Ask the Lawyer, Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570 The Mission and FM 102.3 WMCA, and also Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970 The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again to Kevin. Again, you can listen to Kevin McCullough Monday through Friday on 570 The Mission at 3 o'clock each afternoon. Monday through Friday on 970 The Answer at 5 o'clock with an extra hour tacked on when he does John Katsimatidis on Wednesday afternoons. Josias, we, we've got another question, and what's the question you have? Yes, Mr. Corner, the next question is, how often should a will be updated? Well, that's a good question because, you know, like, and it's a hard question to answer because it really depends on the circumstances. Now, a lot of times people, let's say that if they did a will 10 years ago, they think, well, the will's 10 years old, I got to update it. Not necessarily, if nothing's changed. One of the things we keep looking for, if your will needs to be updated, one, tax purposes, you know, did the tax laws and the tax laws have changed. But do you need to update your will because the tax laws that the will was written for do not apply anymore? That happens all the time right now because, you know, at one time it was only a million dollars tax-free in New York State. Right now we're at $5,740,000. And maybe we don't need that tax language. We can make the will a little bit simpler. Usually it's not a harm to you if you don't update it, but it, it may be just a little bit more work. So you may want to make it simpler if, if you've gone under the tax limits. That's one. Two, here are the, the, the problems that I a lot of times see when somebody did a will years ago. One, who's the executor? You know, a lot of times, let's say you did your will 30 years ago, your brother or sister's the executor, and now maybe it should be your children. They were 10 years old then, now they're 40. So it's time maybe to turn control over to your son or daughter who may be 40 or whatever, you know, and, and that can be a problem. Sometimes people live to be 90 and, and you got a 90-year-old brother or sister's executor, and that's that can, that can cause a delay or problem if the 90-year-old is not really into the job. So that's one thing. Who's your executor? See if it's updated. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times people do wills and they're, you know, they don't have grandchildren and it's not clearly defined what would happen if something happened to one of their children. You know, ordinarily, yes, we want it to pass to the grandchildren. If a child passes away, 90, 95% of the people want the assets to pass to the, your child's child, your grandchild. So a lot of times that's not taken care of in an old will because maybe when you signed the old will, you didn't have any grandchildren. And so, you know, who, who's going to be in charge? How old does the grandchild have to be to inherit? You don't want an 18-year-old inheriting, let's say, a few hundred thousand dollars or even more. You want at least for it to be held until they're 21, 25, 30, whatever age you think is right. Another thing, if you did your will years and years ago, if the signatures of the witnesses are not notarized um, and you can't find the, the witnesses to a will, there could be a delay. Now, I mean, people say all the time, my witnesses to my will are dead. Is that a problem? Well, not if their signatures were witnessed, notarized. It could be a problem if they were not. It also could be a problem if somebody's going to contest your will, although 
that you can go back and forth on because you can't examine somebody who's passed away, and sometimes it's better to have a deceased witness. So don't panic just because your witnesses may be passed away. That for itself is not a reason to update your will. But listen, if your will is more than 10 years old, you may want to take a look at it. Did circumstances change? You know, a lot of times people say, oh, you know, I've got my brother-in-law's executor of the will. Take a look at it. See if it's what you want. But there's no set rule. It's You got to keep in mind of what you've done and what you should be doing. And if you want, give us a call at Connors and Sullivan. Now, we're going to be taking a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. We'll listen to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I'm here. And Attorney Josias. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 24th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03, Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. On Wednesday, September 25th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Connolly's Corner, 71 71- 17 Grand Avenue in Masspeth and on Friday, September 27th at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 6500. That's Connors and Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest is Kevin Williamson. He's got a book out by Regnery Press, The Smallest Minority. 
Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks. How are you doing? Okay, pretty good. Now, what what is your book about? Because it's kind of intriguing there. It's about the ways in which social media has encouraged the team sports aspect of politics to exclude everything else. And so that we're left with a political discussion, which is just good guys and bad guys, white hats and black hats, cowboys and Indians, us and them, which ends up, I think, really undermining our political discourse in important ways. Mob politics. It's both sides, mm-hmm. I assume. Yeah, there's 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 that element on both sides. You know, you get the kind of uh, social justice stuff on Twitter and social media. On the right, it tends to be more organized around talk radio and cable news. But it ends up being the same thing of uh, people discounting arguments, facts, uh, everything else is based on where you're coming from. So people will say, well, you know, I saw that story. It was in The New York Times. so I'm just going to ignore it because it's in The New York Times. So that came from Fox News. so I'm just going to ignore it. Or, well, you're in that party, and so anything you say about this must not be true. And so I'll get things like, you know, I'll be talking about, I'm not even a Republican, but I'm on the right, I'm a conservative, and I'll talk about, you know, something like tax reform or whatnot, and I'll get, well, what about Trump and Russia? (laughs) Well, what about Trump and Russia? I'm not talking about that. I don't have anything particular to do with it. But it ends up being this kind of really adolescent, reactionary, we're the good people, you're the bad people version of politics. And that's always been there. But social media has amplified that trend and that tendency to the exclusion of almost everything else in the political conversation. And unfortunately, that trend is leaking over from social media into real life, where people are beginning to behave in the real world more like they behave on Twitter and Facebook, which is not good for anybody. Do you have any idea how many people are actually involved in Twitter and Facebook? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's enormous numbers. Facebook, of course, is much larger than Twitter. But, you know, you're talking millions and millions and millions of people, even when you're accounting for, you know, all the uh, bot accounts and people with multiple accounts and the uh, AstroTurf operations and all that, you're still talking about millions and millions and millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions, close to billions of people. Now, let me ask you something about the title. You stole yeah. it from Ayn Rand? I did, yeah. So Ayn Rand had this thing um, where she says that the, uh, the smallest minority on earth is the individual. And um, it's a good line. I'm just not much of an admirer of Ayn Rand. So my title page says I took the title from Ayn Rand. And I took it from her because she doesn't deserve it. Uh, she, was, she was a fine writer who decided to spend her career being a propagandist and a, and a tract writer, which I think is a bad use of, uh, of literary talents. So the point of that, though, is that um, if you're going to have a useful democratic discourse, if we're going to have a real conversation about our actual national problems that we're trying to address through politics, we have to be able to deal with each other as individuals and as citizens, not as mascots or representatives of warring rival tribal groups. Because if we do the latter, you can never really have a real conversation, which prevents any kind of useful democratic consensus or modus vivendi from from emerging. When did this start to happen? It's not just social media. I mean, we started to divide I think before Facebook and Twitter. Oh, yeah. There's always been this element of it. There's always been a tribal aspect of our politic. And you can go back and um, you can go back and look at that through the, you know, the 1920s, 30s, 1950s, um, various times in history, certainly in the 60s when it's been more prominent. But it's never been something that has been to the exclusion of everything else in politics. So, you know, in 19, uh, oh, 1984, you could be Ronald Reagan and make a good case for yourself and win 49 states. 
Um, that just simply doesn't happen anymore because it's such a team sport that people will never be persuaded by someone on the other side, irrespective of what he's done in office or how good his record is or how good his arguments are. Um, that's just a reality of where we are now. People aren't really persuadable and people aren't really movable. And not only that, they simply won't listen. So when you're convinced that the party on the other side is not just wrong or not just has different priorities from yours, but is actually evil, is actually either the moral equivalent of Adolf Hitler or the moral equivalent of just Stalin, then it becomes very difficult to listen and it becomes very difficult to persuade and to find points of consensus and agreement. What is the conclusion of your book? Well, the conclusion is that we are in an awful place right now, and there's no real sign of it getting better anytime in the short term. Um, I try to advise people to understand what it is that people go to social media for, which I think will help put this problem in perspective for people. Because people don't go to Twitter to learn about what's going on in the world. They don't go to Twitter to get the news. It's not like a newspaper or a magazine or even a television news program. People go to Twitter for validation. They go to Twitter for the enjoyable feeling of having someone pay attention to them. That's what Twitter is there for. It's a thing where people stand there in the public square and say, please, please pay attention to me. And uh, that's kind of the evil genius of social media is that uh, your status is structured in such a way you can quantify it and put a number on it. You know, you see how many people tweeted this, how many people liked it, how many people retweeted it how many followers you have, how many friends you have on Facebook. People are always anxious about their status relative to other people and about the status of the groups they belong to relative to the status of other groups in society. And social media, by quantifying that and putting a published, publicly available number on it, I think really heightens and intensifies that. And I think that's part of um, part of why people like it and part of why people hate it. It's, uh, it's definitely a love-hate relationship, I think. Do you think social media has too many inf- uh, has too much influence on the political on the uh, the political personages? Um, yeah, it does certainly. I think that um, that right at the moment is probably a bigger problem for Democrats than it is for Republicans. So here's something I don't say very often. Paul Begala had a useful, interesting thought the other day, and he was talking about the ways in which Democratic campaign staffers and campaign managers are checking. Twitter every 30 seconds, and they get a very biased and distorted view of what that means because the people on social media, particularly the people on the left on social media, tend to be far to the left of where the Democratic Party actually is, where its average voter is. Uh, They tend to be very, very angry and hysterical about a small number of issues that don't actually mean that much to the wider population. So you go to to social media, and the, the, the conversation is about well, this person didn't follow the proper protocol on asking someone what uh, pronouns they prefer, and therefore this person is just Goebbels and this person is, is Adolf Hitler. That is not what your typical Democratic voter in Michigan or Alabama or Wisconsin is actually talking about or actually cares that much about. But if you are a campaign staffer and you see this all day and you see this got 100,000 retweets and 200,000 likes and everybody you know is talking about it, it gives you a different view of where the world is. Is it even possible to have a civil discourse and a polite debate in today's world? Well, it's become very, very difficult. Uh, partly that's attention span. You know, I worked at National Review, which was founded by uh, William F. Buckley, and he had a famous show called Firing Line, in which he, as a conservative, would have people on, often people on the far left, you know, Noam Chomsky and people like that. And they would have an hour or two hours of very civil but detailed and intense discussion and debate about things. And it would be just impossible to get a viewership for a show like that anymore, I think. 
But if you go on Twitter and say, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi, uh, you can get a million followers. And uh, people who have either emotional reasons for wanting to have large followings or just plain old commercial reasons because they're entrepreneurs don't have a lot of incentive to engage in more measured and respectful conversation because there's simply not that much of an audience for it, unfortunately. Now, speaking of William Buckley, my son heard you speak the other day, and, and mm-hmm. you gave an anecdote where you helped uh, William Buckley find the right word. I did, yeah. I was um, I was uh, very fortunate to be um, acquainted with him a little bit, and uh, we were having an editorial dinner at his house in New York, what turned out to be the last of those a few months before he passed away. And he was telling a story about someone, I don't remember who it was, and he was a writer, and he said in his pro style, it was kind of, and he turned and looked at me and said, what's the word that means like engraved in stone? I said, lapidary? He said, yeah, lapidary. And so I went home and I wrote a letter to one of my high school English teachers that told her that uh, Bill Buckley just asked me for a vocabulary word and I knew it. So congratulations. Well done. Go ask for a raise. Very good. Well, listen, (laughs) Kevin Williamson, the smallest minority, independent thinking in the mob of politics. Why should somebody read this book? Well, they should read it for a couple of reasons. One, if you're curious about why it is that people are so outraged and you can no longer have a normal conversation with people. Um, either online or, you know, at the at the dinner table. People tell all these horror stories now about seeing their families for Thanksgiving or, or other holidays. And there's always that one guy in the family who wants to scream at you about Trump or something else. And irrespective of what side he's on, and often that person doesn't seem to know very much, but they're very, very angry. And, um, you know, William uh, Winston Churchill, rather, once said that a fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. And we've all got that one person in our family so this is an attempt partly to put that trend into context and people understand to help people understand where it's coming from and why it is that way and how it's affecting our broader public life. And it's also just a uh, kind of um, slightly angry smash down of that, that way of doing things to you and, uh, and a plea for a bit more intelligence and maturity in our conversation. Okay, the name of the book, The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics. The author, Kevin Williamson. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Take care. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash F Melia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. 
1948, the U.N. published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I'm here, too. Our next guest is, you know, a guy who played professional baseball and professional football, John Docker, and he was a member of the uh, 1969 Jets Super Bowl team. And I have to thank our good buddy, Ron Rice, one of our listeners, for putting us together with John Dockery. He is a sweetheart. Right. And, you know, thanks to him, we got John Dockery on the show. And, of course, for those of you guys who grew up in Brooklyn, John Dockery grew up in Bay Ridge. Way Bay Ridge! Went to Brooklyn Prep, which is unfortunately not there anymore, but, you know, so John John Dockery is going to be sharing some moments, not just about his football career and playing with the Jets, but also his minor league career with the Boston Red Sox and what happened, what he did for life after his football days were over. Again, you're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I hope you're enjoying it. A couple of months ago, we had on Matt Burke center for the uh, Minnesota Vikings and Baltimore Ravens, who played Ivy League football, played for Harvard. And we had Don Maynard on, who was part of the 69 Jets. Today, we're combining the two of them because we got somebody who played Ivy League football and played for the Jets in the, on the Super Bowl team, John Dockery. Welcome to Connor's Corner, John. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here. Go back, 19, well, 1968 season, 1969. Where were you on the team, and what was the atmosphere like? I was struggling after a, uh, a baseball career that didn't happen. And uh, I had a tryout over at Randall's Island. And, uh, you know, it was actually George Paterno, who was my high school football coach at Brooklyn Prep, who knew Weeb Eubank and said, hey, you ought to take a look at this guy. He can run, he can play. And uh, he did. And I uh, made an attempt at covering Maynard and Sauer uh, and Randall's Island and uh, came out okay. And was activated soon thereafter and uh, after being on the taxi squad and played in the Super Bowl special teams mostly. You just mentioned you tried to cover Maynard and Sauer. Who was, who were <laughs> those guys? Who were those guys? Yeah. Don Maynard and George Sauer were two of the best receivers in the game and uh, different, totally different, which made them even more effective. You know, you know that Maynard was that long, striding Texan who had super speed, but it looked like he was uh, relatively slow, but he was and George Tower had terrific moves and balance and 
uh, was just about impossible to cover in that you know zone between eight and twenty five yards. He just and he caught everything in sight. He was about six two. Good frame, strong, and uh, a terrific player. That Raiders game was a great game. Oh, yeah. Did you, in your heart, believe that you guys as a team would, would win the Super Bowl? No, I don't believe. Mike, were you around then? I mean, come oh, on. Oh, yes, I was, yes. <laughs> okay, I just want to make make sure. Um, did we think we were going to win the Super Bowl? We're 18-point underdogs. Everybody right. else believed we would not and had no shot. Of course, Joe Willie Namath was uh, shooting off his mouth before the game, guaranteeing things, and that made us all sweat a little more. But in another way, you know, when you're a leader and you're quarterback uh, in a game that's just quarterback-driven, guarantees a win. You have to step back and think, well, maybe we have a shot. But, Mike, if you look at that team, and had they, there were some players on it, real good players that no one seemed to give them credit for. Snell and Boozer. Um, Sauer and Maynard, as you mentioned, and uh, Winston Hill at the, at the weak side tackle, and uh, some really good players across the board. Yes, we got we played well, and Joe played well, but Matt Snell might have been the MVP of the game. He had a hundred and some odd yards, I believe. Oh no, he had a great game, and I don't think anybody could rem- nobody could forget who saw that game. His touchdown run at the beginning. Yes, exactly. So we got a little lift, and off we went. And um, I don't know if we believe for sure, but there was an inkling that we could take these guys. And, you know, they didn't know us that well, and we didn't know them that well because it was, you know, the leagues were coming together, the AFL and the NFL. And, uh, you know, so we had, you know, we were an unknown commodity, which was probably a good idea to sneak up on him. Well, let me ask you something. You talk about Weeb Eubank. Tell the audience a little bit about Weeb Eubank because he's sort of forgotten right now. You know, he won two championships as an NFL coach. Isn't it amazing? And all they, all they talk about is Pittsburgh in the 70s, the dynasty, and now, of course, Brady and Belichick are now. Um, Weeb was a laid-back kind of guy. He'd be wandering around like he was lost. But all the time, his mind was working, and he was a good strategy man and uh, was pretty good at picking players, too. Um, Of course, he and Joe didn't always agree on things because they were totally different personalities. At one time, I'll just give you a little anecdote. You may have heard it. So it's it's before the, uh, you know, before the Super Bowl and, you know, the Raiders game was in there and. And Joe is having a horrendous practice, terrible. He's throwing most balls into the ground. And he's just so fed up and frustrated. He finally takes the ball and just wings it, you know, into the stands and says, that's it, I'm leaving. Weave Eubank is standing about 10 yards away and said, all right, everybody off the field. (laughs) So who is coaching the team is my question. (laughs) (laughs) Now, am I mistaken, but Weave Eubank would – bring guys in and out a little bit more than most of the coaches did back then? In and out in terms of uh, in a game? Or yes, in, in, like third yeah. down or things like that. Yeah, he would do that. And, uh, and uh, you know, did we have the greatest team on earth? No, but we had a better team than anyone you gave us credit for. And, uh, um, you know, he'd bring people in and out to try and get a different look. Um, and he was, he, he was smart, quiet but smart. And uh, and it worked well for him, and team had confidence in him, um, even though he wasn't like a, a Chuck Noel, where you looked at him the wrong way. I played for a couple of years in Pittsburgh, and uh, Chuck Noel, if you looked at him the wrong way, you'd be gone. You'd be on waivers. Go find someplace else to play. He was one tough nut 
just the opposite of Wee Bubank, who was kind of cruising along <laughs> and doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned the fact your, your, your first dream was to play professional baseball. What happened there? How, you got signed by the Red Sox? I got signed by the Red Sox when I got out of school, and uh, I actually did finish college, believe it or not, <laughs> which is a good thing. <laughs> right. And uh, the Red Sox, you know, we obviously the Red Sox and the Ivy League had some connection, and, and especially at Harvard. And uh, so they, well, I went over to Fenway Park to give it a shot, try out, hit some balls, catch some things. The thing I could do, you know, fairly well is run, and uh, and they liked that. I mean, in terms of hitting and uh, Fielding, I was all right, too. I played the outfield and could go and get things. But in terms of the thing you have to do in, in pro baseball is is hit, and uh, and that wasn't something I could do. I was, you know, 220, 240 hitter. And uh, so I went from um, I went from Pittsfield, which was double-A, uh, slid down the pipe to Winston-Salem, and eventually to Waterloo, Iowa, and to eventually into the ocean. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a steady slide, but it was an adventure. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't enjoy getting cut and all from the places, but it was something different, and I always wanted to do it. Who were some of the guys you played with in the minor leagues? I'll tell you what, the uh, some of the big, big bats for the Red Sox. Um, you know, Canigliaro was there. Um, who else? Um, the thing I remember most about the Red Sox, yeah, I played some with some really good players. George Scott. Um, but the thing I remember most is in the batting cage trying to figure out how to hit the ball, which was a, which was a major challenge. And who comes in to teach you? Ted Williams. It's like <laughs> God coming on earth and saying, okay, here's what you do. <laughs> Ted Williams. <laughs> so it was, you know, those are the kinds of memories that come along whether you turn out to be as successful or not. So, um, what did you think of Ted Williams as a hitting instructor? Because I've heard different opinions. Yeah, yeah, and you should hear different opinions. I mean, I was awestruck by him. Ted Williams, geez, my. You know, I mean, I was grew up in the Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, you know, Ted Williams era. Um, and he was just such a, one of the greatest hitters of all time. And uh, But in terms of communicating and seeming to care about what he was doing, uh, left a little bit to be desired. He wasn't the warmest uh, fuzzy guy uh, around. He was kind of a, a distant guy and says, here it is. This is what you should do. And if you do do it and can do it, you, you can get, you'll hit. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> of course, I, could, I couldn't do it. <laughs> we'll send you out there next time, Mike. Yeah, all right. All right. St. So, Francis days. <laughs> yeah. So let, let me ask you this. Okay. How do you get into football then? What's what's the transition? So I'm wandering around, figuring what I'm going to do with my life, and you know, disappointed definitely. And uh, you know, I applied to graduate school and went to Columbia School of Architecture, and that's where I was going when George Paterno um, called Wee Bubank and said, you know, take a look at this guy, and uh, he did. And I went over to Randall's Island, as I mentioned, and uh, and was given a spot. You know, thought they saw something that might be useful and uh, put me on the taxi squad, and uh, that was in 67, 68. 68, I'm on the team uh, at the end of the year and in the Super Bowl <laughs> from places like Waterloo, Iowa, <laughs> to the Super Bowl <laughs> in Florida, in Miami. 
So you got more playing time a little bit further on. So how many years did you play for the Jets? I played five years. Okay. And what what was your most memorable moment as a member of the New York Jets, besides playing in the Super Bowl or being in the Super Bowl? I think just the, the, the memories go with some of the people on the team, some guys that I really enjoy. Guys like Winston Hill, who was this giant of a tackle, as you know about him. He was a great player and a decent guy. And just some of the way people warmed up to me that I didn't think they would. I mean, you know, I came from Bay Ridge. You know about that. And it was, you know, immigrants were uh, a kaleidoscope in the neighborhood from Italian to Polish to Irish. And so when you got to a place where, uh, you know, especially when I got to the Steelers, um, I thought, oh, my, this is a team that's, you know, uh, more more non-white than white. And I said, well, and the Jets were different than that. Not that I made a difference, it just was different. And I made some great friends there and some great players. Mel Blunt, he was a cornerback, we played the same position. You never know it, what a great player. And just, you know, some of Frank O'Harris, Dwight White, L.C. Greenwood, um, you know, Mean Joe Green was the nicest guy on the planet. If <laughs> you didn't cross him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm standing on the sidelines one time, right? And Joe Green is smoking. Because somebody we we were losing to I can't I forget the team so I'm on the outside to turn the play in I'm you know, hanging around going to run down like as fast as I can and all of a sudden as I get ready to go Joe Green grabs my jersey flips me off the field and he goes down on the kickoff I said well, you crazy Joe Joe of course I didn't argue too much <laughs> uh, because he he's a nice guy but if he was angry you were in deep trouble. <laughs> And Terry Bradshaw and all, all the characters. Handwriting was a terrific guy, and it was more that than anything else. I mean, uh, you know, the Jets, uh, I guess I was new and sort of intimidated, um, and uh, but but there were some terrific guys there as well. I mean, uh, yeah. Now I remember you on TV as, uh, were you an announcer or a sportscaster? But I remember you on TV doing commentaries after your playing career. What, what were you doing then? I was doing... Um, I worked for CBS and uh, NBC, and I was doing commentaries on NFL and college football, and um, um, also got a, uh, it was a great experience as well, because after I stopped playing, I was doing commentary, and, and during the, as I said, during the NFL season, but also got to do things like you'd never get to see, the Tour de France, um, the Olympics. Barcelona, Atlanta, places like that, doing sports you couldn't imagine. I mean, weightlifting, uh, um, just uh, and seeing some of the greatest athletes in the world, wrestling, and just incredible. So, you know, I guess I got a chance to spread across a lot of different things. It was not boring, I'll tell you that. Barcelona was beautiful. I can still see it. And uh, the Olympics was something very, very special. So, yes, I was football, but and I probably was identified for that, but I also spent some time on the uh, on the Olympics doing things like, and things like the Tour de France, and things like, uh, you know, just other sports as well, offbeat sports. How, how many years did you say in the broadcasting? I was in broadcasting about six, seven years. What was your next step? My next step was, uh, I went out, oh, I, I, was, I got involved in business, and... Uh, Went from from the broadcast booth. I continued doing some, and while I was doing that, I got into a business, uh, services business. Um, 
doing back office services for big companies, um, things like mail operations and trucking and things like that. Well, let me ask you something. I mean, you had an Ivy League education, but a lot of the guys, your contemporaries or whatever, did they do as how many football players, retired football players, or players who cut, which happens most of the time, how many of them do well in their post-careers as opposed to how many don't do that well? I think back when, Mike, it was a lot more because the dollars weren't there to, to support you for retirement and the rest of your life. So I think it was something that uh, as the numbers went up and as guys got, I think, a little more intelligent to put things away and they got financial advisors, I think they had a better shot. Uh, today, if, if a guy signs a three- or four-year contract as a relatively high draft choice or, or a good player, he's going to make enough money to to support him the rest of his days. So um, it's a little tougher back then. You had to do a little more juggling. But, uh, yeah, you do the best you can. And uh, certainly was something that um, was mountains of enjoyment, even though the pressure was enormous. Are you kidding? Stand out at – well, you were a football player. What was your position? No, I wasn't a football player, not – Oh, baseball. Yeah. But um, – Because I, I was just about to say, um, if you've ever stood out at the cornerback position looking down at, at some of the players that played out there, one in particular you probably don't remember, Jerry Levias, the guy was as quick as anything I've seen on the planet. And trying to cover him was something else. And then you get some of the other receivers, great receivers, and uh, you say, okay, cover this guy one-on-one. Okay, sure. <laughs> Send the fire engines. <laughs> Now, one year you had five interceptions. I remember that. or looking it over it. So what was your most memorable yeah. interception? You know, I got one against, uh, who was it, Vikings, I think. And uh, I ran it all the way back, like uh, 50 yards. And I could see the end zone. And oh, I said, this is going to be nice. I'm going to have a touchdown, a pick six, great stuff. Only someone else had an idea. I didn't see him. He smashed me out of bounds at the two-yard line. Oh, <laughs> I know. I said, come on. Yeah, the five, five interceptions, yeah, it was tied for the lead with the, in the team. So there were some good moments. There were some moments I could forget, <laughs> and I will forget. Well, listen, anybody who's been coached by Weave Eubank and Ted Williams, that's, you got a lot of history in there, and Chuck Noll. Yeah, and Chuck Noll. Yeah. So there were yeah, different ways of coaching and winning. You know, it's interesting. You can do it multiple ways, and, and those guys were so different from one another, uh, and yet they won. Well, Super Bowl champion, John Dockery, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you, Michael. Take care now. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect Protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. 
We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Right. And Josiah Scarriam. Good afternoon. Okay. Okay. Now, American football. Do you know very much about American football? Yeah, I know a little bit about American football. It's not uh, the big sport in Puerto Rico. I'm from Puerto Rico, by the way. But yeah, I'm very familiar with the sport. What's better, American football or soccer? No, no, nobody can talk about soccer on the show. That's not allowed. It's not even. You know. I will go for the American football, by the way. Good man. Good man. See, all right. Yeah, well, John Dockery is the fourth member of the Super Bowl Jets that we've had on the show. Uh, we had on Dave Herman, who was the, I was going to say he was the guard. He was the guard for the Jets in the regular season. And then because of an injury, they moved him over to right tackle, and he played the Super Bowl at right tackle and demolished Bubba Smith, who was a big star at the time. So we had Dave Herman on. We had Pete Lamons, who was the tight end for the for the Jets that season. And we had Don Maynard on, who was a Hall of Fame NFL player. John Dockery talked a little bit about Don Maynard. Unfortunately, George Sowers passed away, so we're not going to get him on the show. But not Don Maynard was a truly great receiver. He's one of the few guys who could outrun the cornerbacks and beat him deep. And I think his average pass yards per reception is something like 22 plus yards. And you're you know? saying he wasn't really that big, but he had a distinctive running style. Yeah, he had long loping strides and he didn't look like he was going that fast and he could deceive a cornerback because he'd be running stride by stride and all of a sudden he'd put a sudden burst of speed on and get behind him. Of course, Joe Namath was slinging the balls to him back then. So, it, you know, some of the passes went a long way. 69 Jets, I mean, it's hard to believe it's more than 50 years ago that oh, the I'm Jets were in the Super Bowl. It. I'm feeling it sometimes. Yeah, so John Dockery, you know, enjoyed the interview, as he said, after, you know, and shook up some of the cobwebs or whatever. And I had no idea that he played professional baseball and that Ted Williams... That's you know. unbelievable. Yeah. All the people he worked with? Oh, my yeah. goodness. Well, Ted Williams, Chuck Knoll, and Weeb Eubank. Weeb Eubank, Chuck Knoll, Hall of Fame football coaches. Ted Williams, obviously, one of the greatest hitters of all time. You know, a, a great athlete just seems sometimes just to be a, a great athlete in multiple Like Your cousin, Chuck Connors. What, he did basketball, baseball, and football before he began and became an actor? Yeah. 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 So, speaking of that, are we going to the Newfoundland reunion? I don't know. Okay, now what's the story? The lady was on the ferry over there. And no, one broke. of our clients, which we have to get her as a guest, <laughs> was on the, the ferry to Newfoundland and the boiler broke up or something like that and they had to go back and it took her who knows how many hours to 20 do the crossing. hours. Uh, yeah, so remember we've got Otto. I don't <laughs> think we can have Otto on the ferry for 20 hours. 
Okay, but but you say we can go up to Quebec and then get a two-hour ferry that yeah, eighty takes minutes you, that takes you to Labrador, and then we've got a six-hour drive down to St. John's. Is that what we're looking at? I think so. Oh my! But it goodness. is the Connors family reunion, and it is in it July twenty twenty, and we have to get the land back. Right, right. But, you know, yeah. we'll wait for Mel to come back on the show and see what he says about it. <laughs> Just so everybody knows, my husband's ancestors, you know, were doing their duty. They came down to the United States and the ones left up there snitched the land. Same thing happened to the Mitchells in, in Mississippi. The ones that went to Louisiana lost the land. Oh, for crying out loud. Now, for those of you who want to learn more about estate planning elder law, we are going to be doing seminars at the end of September. So if you listen to the end of the show, Matt's going to give you the, the time and dates. If you want to reserve for one of the seminars, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And what do you learn at the seminars? Usually a lot of the time we spend about what to do with your house, how to pass your house to the next generation, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and saving that house from nursing home bills. Because a lot of people out there, the most important asset in their minds is the house. You know, cash is cash, and, and but there's no sentimental value to cash. The house is something that a lot of people would like to pass on to the next generation. If you want to learn how to do it in the right way, give us a call. We'll tell you when the seminars. We're going to be in, in September, the end of September. We're going to be in Queens. Then we'll be back in Manhattan and Staten Island in October, and then probably Brooklyn in early December. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Hopefully, we'll see you next week. Thank you, everybody. Have a nice day, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 24th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03, Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. On Wednesday, September 25th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth. And on Friday, September 26th, at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.